Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Dr. Catalina Lawson. Over the last two decades, Dr. Catalina Lawson has been a clinical psychologist, researcher, and professor in the fields of psycho-oncology addressing cancer's impact on sexual well-being and health disparities amongst POC and immigrants. Dr. Catalina was an associate professor at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, University of Sydney, and Baruch College in New York. Her research has explored quality of life amongst individuals and their partners impacted by cancer to improve relationships and sexual well-being. She's received numerous federal grants to design and test e-health interventions to improve access to support. Dr. Catalina integrates her research and experience towards empowering clients to make difficult and long-lasting changes to live fully. Through this experience, she has learned that intimate connection is essential for and a key marker for our overall wellness. Dr. Catalina provides individual and couples therapy from a relational perspective using evidence-based strategies stemming from mindfulness, cognitive behavioral, and attachment research in Beverly Hills, Santa Monica, and online for clients living in California, New York, and Illinois. She specializes in working with clients coping with major life transitions and complex traumas. Today, we talk about achieving sexual wellness through education. Welcome, Dr. Lawson. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I know you're a psychologist who does a lot of work with sexuality and sexual function in the work you do with working with people in your sessions and just a lot of educational information that you try to put out there for people. And so I'm just so curious to have a conversation today about the work that you do and some of your techniques and approaches thinking about this topic. Absolutely. So as I've mentioned, so much of my background was in psycho-oncology, dealing with sexual concerns after cancer. And the more and more I've delved further into addressing sexual concerns, one, in my private practice, I see more than just individuals impacted by cancer, but also other chronic diseases, but also menopause. And I specifically also see a lot of women of color and immigrants. And so, so much of the way I approach sexuality is from such a multidimensional approach. And specifically when we are talking about libido and desire, and I really integrate a lot of what we understand about neuroscience, a lot of sociocultural norms into that, but also a lot and inherent to neuroscience, a lot about how we learn. And the way we're understanding desire lately very much is evolving. And so that's where a lot of my work lately has been really focusing on on clarifying a lot of what we used to assume about sex and libido and empowering individuals to really delve in, explore, get curious about their sexuality so that through that process, they one, will see what actually comes out of it and where they are right now in their sexuality, but two, really rekindle and fire up their libido and becomes more sexually aroused. I would assume that people who seek you out as their psychologist are already curious about their sexuality. Definitely. The women who present to me are generally, I mean, it's hard to step out for support, as you know, for any problem. 
But when you're talking about sex and intimacy, particularly if you are in a relationship, that can feel incredibly threatening. I mean, the number of couples who come to me who've been married for decades and finally are like, enough is enough. And it's interesting because one, particularly if they've had kids, it's generally once the kids go that they're like, okay, we've gotten that job done. I actually want a great life now. And if the sex in this, in this relationship isn't going to get better, well, then maybe it is time for us to depart. So definitely the people who do present do prioritize their sexuality. Mm-hmm. But then look at what actually people are searching online. Sex and cancer are the two main things that people are looking for online, right? They're looking for information about their health, but sex, whether it be porn or something or another, there was a recent study showing that about five times a day, somebody is talking about sex. People are talking about sex in some kind of context. So for something that is so significant and central to our life, actually, most people just do with me or without. Mm. You know, we know that even younger generations, particularly during this pandemic and over the last several years, we've been seeing Younger individuals, young individuals, kids, people in their 20s are having less sex than people in their 40s and 50s, which is props to us, you know? (laughs) But when we're seeing relationships shifting, as far as people not living together, not marrying as much, they're also not having as much sex. Mm. And that's where we're starting to see intimacy changing. So absolutely, people who present to me generally are pretty sex positive see it as a priority, enough of a priority that they're actually looking for support. But a lot of the work that I do as far as putting videos out and on social media is for the masses who literally think it's important, but one, don't have access to that support because there's just, for the majority of the world, there's not support. And there's not actually good information out there. That's actually the number one reason I like to do stuff on social media or make videos is because there's so much crap information out there that I actually think it's really important for clinicians who are qualified to actually clarify it. So going back to, you're talking about maybe kind of a hypothetical case of a couple that comes to you and says, you know, or maybe just an individual who says, I wish I had more of a libido. I wish sex was more of a priority or something that was more pleasurable in my life. How do you even start with a patient that you see? Where do you begin? First, I very much normalize that their experience is pretty common because again, the first thing that they're going to feel is what did I do wrong? Almost every single behavior, we look back on ourselves with regret of what choices that I make, how that question of how did my life turn out like this? So the first thing I do is really try to provide some psychoeducation around how common this phenomenon is, particularly in relationships. And then also some of the, we explore, you know, what are some of the relationship factors that actually have evolved? When we think about passionate sex, particularly under the assumption that it needs to be spontaneous. Anyone, particularly if you are dual earning couples who also have kids, realize that your time is precious. And so it is natural that sex would go down. So again, a lot of this is beginning to just explore what actually shifted. So to heighten their awareness as to how individually each person in the dyad actually began to disconnect and not prioritize their sexuality. 
not from a lens of who's to blame, but rather from an understanding of this didn't just suddenly happen. So that that also sets up this expectation of it didn't just suddenly happen. We actually, now your body thinks this is the norm. This is what it's comfortable with. Okay, we're about to get uncomfortable. So we now have to gradually take it slow to work with this discomfort. I think one of the biggest things that particularly in long-term relationships couples come in with is, God, the first several years we, we had kids, we were married, or even when the kids were small, sex was amazing. Well, this expectation that it will get back to that, that can be where we use our brains and our memories of pleasure to actually feed from. But we're so different now. We change every moment, particularly as we're aging. Our bodies are changing. And what we find pleasurable and arousing is going to change. And flat out, you know, it's interesting because the way we see our partner is also going to change. And that always, let's be honest, isn't always positive. And it doesn't always make us want to be with our partner. So I think that a lot of those things starting off is just acknowledging, exploring in those first several sessions is really figuring out, okay, where have you been? How did you get here? And where are you at? But then also beginning to actually envision what you actually want it to be. And this is where you start getting into fantasy and realize that so many people don't even know what that is. Like fantasy. So many people feel guilty about oh my gosh, I watched Bridgerton and I had sexual dreams. Am I cheating on my husband? I mean, you'd be surprised how many people actually think this. And and I'm like, gosh, man, whoever has to pitch hit, bring them in, you know? (laughs) But there's so many norms against that, Mm -hmm. against, oh, a work colleague or, and again, this is not talking about sexual harassment. It's being human and being aroused or attracted to not even just physically, but something in something else in another experience triggers arousal for us and pleasure. And I'm a big believer of finding all of those things, whatever those experiences, whatever the sensations are, and putting them in our pleasure bucket so that we can then tap into that and very much bring that on for ourselves. Got it. Well, right. And you had mentioned kind of realizing that you have to retrain your body. Can you talk a little bit more about about that and maybe how people become a little desensitized in a way to stimuli? Absolutely. Well, so when we think about learning, our body over time learns, okay, this is beneficial for me. And when we think about, when we're thinking at a basic, like protective nervous system level, our body thinks this is safe, this is dangerous. And it's, again, it's on a continuum, but when we think about sexuality, the way we understand it is, is that there's the gas and then there's the brakes. And there's two types of brakes. There's the pedal where you're kind of pumping the gas immediately. And that's the acute where your brain's thinking, nope, nope, I'm not, I'm not aroused right now. Or there's the handbrake that you can sometimes drive with and it's on all the time, but you don't notice and you still can drive. So we know that when we're thinking about sexuality, that it's both the gas and the brakes that are constantly unconsciously going. But over time, what ends up happening is is, is that when people start losing their desire or their libido decreases, they end up 
pushing more brakes generally, particularly for women, they're pushing more brakes and not pumping as much gas. So what we want to find out is, okay, wait a second, what actually would encourage you to pump that gas? And that's where pleasure comes in. So this is where we start to teach our body actually what is pleasurable because this is the fine line between pleasure and pain. Our body is going to be averse to pain and pain can be experienced if there's perceived threat or danger. Novelty can be perceived as danger. Mm -hmm. So when we think about sex, what we know is, is that you got to feel just safe enough. Meaning that your body needs to think, I'm safe, but I'm not too safe because too safe is too boring. And then there's no gas. It's just going to say, eh, let's pump the brakes. It's nothing new here to explore. So it needs to feel safe so that it goes just gently on the gas. And then, and then there's some novelty or there's some newness that this is where we explore ourselves anew in that new moment, focus on our sensations or, or use our fantasy, all of those things that we begin to harness. And then that actually self-reinforces and teaches our brain more gas, more gas. I like this. I like this feeling. And then the brakes ease up because our body's feeling, hmm. feeling less threatened. And so then when you think about that over time, it's just like with all learning, positive reinforcement that is consistent, predictable, actually becomes new behavior. And this is how we know with every single behavior we engage in. And so that's when we particularly think about sex and in the context of relationships, geez, even amongst couples who are amicable and partners, you may work well in managing the house, managing work, managing the kids, but you may not necessarily know anymore how to even manage yourself in the bedroom, let alone together. And so this is where first and foremost, really encouraging people to focus on their own gas and brakes and what actually drives that and then begin to co-regulate with their partner, get in sync, but really foster a place where they take their time and are safe in actually exploring. Because I think that this is the other thing in long-term relationships is there is not much time. <laughs> you know, there's just not much time. Even during a pandemic, you would have thought that, oh, everyone's just having sex now. You just have a quickie over at lunch. No, it's actually not. Most couples who are living together, they reported are having about 25% less sex. Instead of a baby boom, there's a baby bust. And so in general, we because we know that when people are more stressed, libido goes down and people are having less sex. Hmm. Well, I also am curious, you mentioned that younger people actually have less kind of sexual experiences at younger ages versus previous decades. I'm just curious about that. What are some thoughts about why that is? I think that there's been lots of different theories around it, that as far as the seriousness or the commitments of dating amongst younger individuals, particularly younger millennials, but then even the generations after them, just seeing it as, ah, is it worth it or not? You know, there's just, a, I think that the, the intensity of relationships has shifted. People are a lot quicker in their relationships and they're not staying in them as long. And the one thing that we know when it comes to sex is, is that you're actually going to have longer and more satisfied sex 
with somebody that you can actually explore that sex with. And so again, going back to that principle of, well, am I going to get dressed up for the party if the party isn't that fun? then that contributes to, well, maybe they're not having as much great sex. So there's, there's some factors there, but a lot of it is they're looking at just how younger individuals are connecting and prioritizing relationships in general. They're not engaging in as many committed relationships, but there's also a greater awareness of STDs and being responsible and assertiveness. So there's also this part, which I think it, that definitely should play a part of also knowing that you don't have to have sex. So again, so much of when we talk about, oh, people are having sex less frequently is about intercourse. So I do think that there actually is more non-intercourse happening or at least the same. But I think that there's also a greater awareness of some of the consequences Mm -hmm. around sex and there's more maturity around it. There's been hypotheses, all these different hypotheses kind of playing into why you're seeing generational effects there. Interesting. So in a way you could think that as sex educators or people who are kind of work in the field of sex education are actually doing a a good job at letting people know. And in some ways it's good. In some ways, maybe you're wondering, okay, those are the positives, right? But I guess the negatives are, are people avoiding connections with people, that sort of concern. Well, you got to remember, particularly with millennials, they're just seeing so much divorce happening. Then when you bring back attachment theory and things like that, it makes sense why we would have these generational shifts. I mean, our generation was the first to start seeing divorce, period. And then millennials were the ones who really, really saw it. They were experiencing adolescence through it. And so when they're starting to develop what they perceive as a healthy relationship, they're not having those models. Why would they want to engage in that? Mm-hmm. You know? And so I do think that things will shift and you'll start seeing those things as social norms around it. Because I think as people are getting married later, then the hope is, is that people who are getting married later generally, and it is true, I mean, at least in our generation of cohort of People who do tend to get married later are a bit more mature, pick better matched partners, and are less likely for a divorce. And then as they then start having kids, maybe we'll start seeing a difference too. But you see the trickle down, you know? Mm-hmm. And when you think about, because when you think about the opposite of how much childhood neglect and abuse is one of the main predictors of incarceration of all of these negative outcomes, substance use, criminal activity, all of these other things. The base of that is, okay, what were the relationships people were living around? And that's something actually, no matter what has shifted, all we're seeing is is childhood neglect and abuse actually staying the same or rising in different communities. So I think that there's lots of different levels here and you can tell, I, right. I like, I like taking different perspectives. Well, <laughs> I mean, there are, there are so many different directions we can go in, but I wonder yeah. if we can talk about the work you do with just helping people enhance their sexual function, because I know yeah. you do work a lot with that sort of question that people bring to you. In my work with individuals who have had cancer in particular or postmenopausal. The number one thing, I mean, again, when we're thinking physical changes, we're thinking vaginal dryness, decreased libido, and pain during intercourse. So 
Here on the psychological level, I really address some anticipatory anxiety there, get use a lot of mindfulness and somatic work to actually get them to reconnect with their body, to be taking things gently. Then I use encourage things like vaginal dilators, self-pleasure, those types of exercises to actually begin to pair and retrain individuals to feel more comfortable and confident to engage in sexual activity. So thereby, again, increasing their pleasure around it and then being able to translate that not just with themselves, but with their partners. The number one reason most women are going to present to sex therapy is, is going to be low libido. But the women who come to me, yes, it's low libido, but there's also generally some sexual pain there. And whether that be because of postmenopausal symptoms or trauma. You had mentioned before we were recording this work with women who you've noticed uh, more women coming in talking about their partners actually having a lower libido than they do and kind of how to, I'm curious how to navigate that process with them. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because in my practice, I really, it is, it's, it's all the women in my practice who are wanting more sex than the men. And I will say this week I, I had my first, where was the opposite? but it generally has been the women having a higher libido and it can be incredibly emasculating for a man in a hetero couple to feel, you know, already there's so much pressure. And I think that that needs to be acknowledged that there is a lot of pressure on men. And again, I'm right now I'm talking about heterosexual couples to perform and to be engaged, to initiate sex. But again, amongst a lot of my female clients in the couples, Unfortunately, I'll be honest, a lot of them, and this is just in my, with my clients, weren't always the most sympathetic to that or empathic with it. And so that's actually going to, that planted a lot of seeds that we had to heal, you know? So first and foremost, we really look at what kind of brought us to where, what did each individual's, what were the shifts in each of them and what was their experience of the other? Because here you see this common loop. You can say it to pretty much every single couple. Okay. One couple doesn't want to have sex. So the other person in the couple feels rejected. So then that rejected person keeps on pursuing, pursuing. Then that person just starts feeling even more threatened and feels guilty and ashamed. So that, but they're going to withdraw more. They're going to feel inadequate And then that loop just keeps going, going, going. It doesn't matter if it's a woman or the man, it's going to keep on going. And this is where very early on in couples work, I take out any blame because that's where the ping pong starts happening. This is, they just start saying, well, you did this, but I tried this. And it becomes quid pro quo of who's actually doing what, when it's like, so let's just assume it's not working. And then, okay. What do you individually need to do to get to a place where you are open to then reconnect? Because so many of couples have siloed themselves to be so disconnected from their partner that even if objectively they may think, yes, I want to do this. I know sex is important for our relationship. I can't get there. Again, their bodies aren't there. Yeah. And I mean, you had mentioned heterosexual couples, but I I think the the process is the same regardless of, yeah. Absolutely. I was saying heterosexual mostly because I was talking about men saying he versus she, but yes, absolutely. That dynamic is across. And this is where also I do want to remind people as far as in long-term relationships, 
how much actually begins to shift in people's roles, you know, like, and I do think that this is also where particularly women who are working and ambitious, but then also taking care. Still, we know that still women are still assuming more responsibilities at home with the kids and with household responsibilities, even though they're dual earning couples, you know, we still know that, but then it's also appreciating how this assumption that relationships are gonna be balanced just is not realistic. You know, <laughs> so I think a lot of it is, is also helping clients identify, wait a second, what were your expectations? But also now, what do you actually want? And are you actually in agreement with this? Was this actually ever negotiated? And maybe it's actually a time for a renegotiation of what those roles are. Because again, what you see is what happens outside of the bedroom is going to impact, impact what's in the bedroom. If everything relies on safety and trust, that's where the relationship underpinnings absolutely are important. But unfortunately, particularly amongst couples who don't fight, amongst couples who actually things are okay, it's just not amazing. And they, they maybe feel, particularly if they feel lonely, but they like their partner as a friend, then it's really easy to just get used to that. And then there's generally something that has to shift, whether that be an affair, the kids move or something. There's generally a trigger that's like, wait a second, actually, no, I don't want it just like this anymore. But it's a shift. It needs to be an intentional shift. I think that that's the number one thing that I try to remind individuals is, is that this is not conscious thinking that, oh, they're choosing to do this. My partner's not attracted to me. This isn't conscious anymore. There's, I assume no mal intent. Because this is absolutely just the way the dynamic is and how you both have learned to be. Because I think that there's so much resentment there. And I know you had spoken to me earlier too about you, some work that you're going to be in doing with women of color and sexuality. Yes. And I'm just curious about how you might approach that differently and specific considerations with that. Absolutely. You know, the reality is, is that the majority of sex research has been done on college students. Now it's gotten more population level, but it's still primarily done in Western countries with Caucasians. That's just been the re sex research, particularly in America, has not been funded over the last decade or two decades very well. And so it's very hard to do a lot of these studies. And when we think of like Masters and Johnson and what was happening to McKinsey, all of that stuff, which actually laid out a lot of the foundation of what we understand about sex, was absolutely done on middle or upper middle class Caucasians. So a lot of when we think about, particularly I primarily work with women around sexual concerns, when we think about sexuality, it is about harnessing our own power. But then when we live in a world where there is not equal power and that there are very, very blatant systems that really are trying to oppress that power. When we, like when I'm talking about what we're even talking about now, many individuals don't actually even think that they have the right to have these conversations, to think like that, you know? The way I bring these things in is, is when I think about racism and sociocultural norms, I think about oppression. And oppression disempowers. 
And when we feel disempowered, we do not feel entitled or able to actually assert our needs, wants, and desires. So it doesn't matter what we actually get. Just get anything, give anything. The idea of consent, oh my goodness, the number of older women, particularly like when I do work in Vietnam with breast cancer patients who are, you know, in their 50s. And they're saying, so I don't have to have sex with my husband if I'm bleeding. You know, I'm like, no, of course you don't. Like, I mean, again, ultimately, so much of my goal when dealing with sex has been to work in developing countries where it isn't a choice. This idea that you have a choice of what you do with your body. The majority of the world of women don't think that they do. We are absolutely told what we have to do and then do not get it twisted. There is a still a very clear reason why certain people, I mean, again, you're across every culture, looking white and having white features is more attractive and will get you more things, period. Whatever those things are, whether that be power, money, access, stability, security, whatever it is. That is across every single culture in the world. And how that trickles down into how we see ourselves and how able we see ourselves. You know, this idea of thriving, most people are absolutely just surviving. So, and I think that that so much of the lens at which I think of, particularly because I work with a lot of first and second gen, where they're coming into a place where, oh, America is supposed to be so much better. Oh, well, yeah, except that we pretty much really capitalism very much actually supports patriarchy, supports white supremacy, supports all of those systems. Yeah, it's more diverse here and we can talk about it and we are pushing that. But that's still reality in America, you know. So a lot of my a lot of my work, one, educates individuals about the histories around this and actually gives them a space with clients to actually explore where they learned this and particularly empathize with their own, particularly mothers around what they learned in their relationship with seeing their parents and then how comfortable they feel actually even talking about sex with themselves and others and what that actually means to them. So that's a lot of how I bring that in. It's a good answer to a very complex question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. The short time that I have, I mean, this is, this, there's a much longer answer, but I mean, I, I kind of get kind of the take, your take on kind of how you approach it with, with certain populations and just particularly women of color. So it's kind of an exciting to hear about the work and the approach that you take with that. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's so interesting because one of the things that particularly in the last year and a half because I see clients in New York, California, and Illinois, and the number of people who are like, I, I don't see people. I've never seen a therapist like you, particularly one who talks about sex as much as you do. You know, like, so I do think that as more clinicians, whatever, doctors, anybody of color there are of us out there and immigrants and can bring all these different dimensions, the more individuals can be like, oh, hey, 
you know, because <laughs> one, I look like all sorts of different Asians and Latinos. So people can relate to me lots of different ways. It just depends on where I am in the world. And I do think that that's important because I certainly didn't have that. Now my mom is so pro me talking about sex, but I didn't have that when growing up. I can't think of one Asian who talked about sex. I loved Dr. Ruth. There still isn't any doctors that are Asian that I can think of that are big on talking about sex and women's health. There's so much to be said about how much we need to improve. And I think that this is the thing is, is that we are super diverse. We're only going to keep getting more diverse. And in our lifetime, to make it just okay for any color woman to respect and assert her desires about her body. Personally, I just do naturally resonate probably more with women of color because flat out as an Asian, particularly I was raised in the South, I was always seen as white. And now being in California, I think I mentioned this to you when we were talking, like here, when I meet Asians who were born and raised in California, I'm like, my experience was not like that. <laughs> like you seem super secure with being Asian. I was not that. Most of my life, I was always, I only got to date the one other Asian person. I was always, and if, when people were blatantly racist against African-Americans, they would not even phase it because I wasn't a minority. I'm Asian, you know? And, I, and so I was very much marginalized so much of my life that I also appreciate that there was some privilege in that. But on the other hand, I also never really felt like I fit in. Mm-hmm. So I do think that, my own experience and when God, when that thinks about beauty, I'm 411. I don't have Asian traits. Like I don't, <laughs> except for the 411, but like I never knew where I fit in. And so I think that I resonate towards and can connect with people who don't. And now the beautiful thing about us being 7 billion is we all fit in somewhere. Mm-hmm. We all fit in somewhere and we all can fit in with into someone or something you know, (laughs) that's a good place to end. It kind of wraps it, wraps it up a little bit before we say goodbye, because this was, I feel like we talked about so many different things and you enlightened me about the work that you do. And I really appreciate it. Are there any last words that you want to say to the listener before we say goodbye? Well, again, so much of my work is, is to remind everyone that we absolutely have a choice and we have control over our bodies and our orgasms. Nobody makes us have an orgasm. Nobody makes us happy. Nobody makes us feel special. We get to do that all for ourselves. And so while that may feel incredibly lonely, sometimes it can be incredibly powerful sometimes, particularly when life is really hard. So Yes. Well, thank you. I will make sure I have your information on the episode description so the listener can learn a little bit more about you. And I'll also ask if you want to add some of your favorite resources um, that we can pass along to the listener. I'll make sure those are on there as well. Absolutely. So Emily Nagoski's Come As You Are updated book just came out this week. And I think it's really, really good for women to really begin to understand their sexuality and how, particularly when we're talking about libido, I think that's a really good reference there. I'm also a big fan of Peggy Kleinplatz's Magnificent Sex, because again, I don't think that we should just aim for having sex. I think that 
It actually needs to be pretty good. So I very much recommend that book. And then I really do always refer my clients to understand just how our nervous system is. And particularly if there's a history of trauma, I recommend The Body Keeps Score from Bessel van der Kolk. All right. So, well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being on, Dr. Lawson. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.